You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. In his memoirs, Richard Nixon describes the departure of the presidential helicopter from the south lawn of the White House. He wrote, suddenly, slowly, we began to rise. The people on the ground below were waving, then we turned. The White House was behind us now. We were flying low next to the Washington Monument. There was no talk. There were no tears left. I leaned my head back against the seat and closed my eyes. I heard Pat saying to no one in particular, It's so sad. It's so sad. After August 9, 1974, Pat Nixon cultivated the privacy she so cherished. She enjoyed watching her gardens and her grandchildren grow. Although she rarely appeared in public, she continued to appear on lists of the world's most admired women. In 1976, she had a stroke, but through sheer force of will, she endured the painful and frustrating therapy until she overcame its incapacitation. She died in June 1993, just one day after her 53rd wedding anniversary. Some people were surprised to see the stoic Richard Nixon broken with grief at her funeral. He managed to regain control of his emotions and deliver a private eulogy to a small group of family friends. He said, 76 years ago in the little house where I was born in 1913, I used to hear the train whistle in the night and dream of places far away I hope to visit someday. I've always been fascinated by trains. My favorite campaign was in 1952. It was the last whistle stop campaign. As the train pulled into a station, a friend would put on a recording of the campaign song on the public address system. Some may remember the lyrics, I like the sunshine of your smile. Above all, when you think of Pat, I hope you will always remember the sunshine of her smile. She would like that. with you to bring inflation under control. Inflation is domestic enemy number one. To restore economic confidence, the government in Washington must provide some leadership. It does no good to blame the public for spending too much when the government is spending too much. Over the past five and a half years in Congress as vice, and as Vice President, I have fully supported the outstanding foreign policy of President Nixon.
this policy I intend to continue. As Vice President, at the request of the President, I address myself to the individual rights of Americans in the area of privacy. There will be no illegal tapping, eavesdropping, bugging, or break-ins by my administration. I foresee no circumstances under which I can see the reimposition of wage and price controls. The situation is precisely this. This past week, I had a meeting with the Democratic and Republican leadership, uh, plus my own advisors in the field of our national economy. There was an agreement, number one, that I would not ask for any wage and price control legislation. There was agreement by the leadership on both sides of the aisle that there was no possibility whatsoever that this Congress in 1974 would approve any such legislation. Number three, uh, labor and management almost unanimously agree that wage and price controls at the present time or any foreseeable circumstances were unwise. Under all of those circumstances, it means wage and price controls are out, period. Will uh, domestic social programs have to bear the whole brunt of the anti-inflation fight, or can some money come out of the defense budget, and if so, how much? No budget for any department is sacrosanct, and that includes the defense budget. I insist, however, that sufficient money be made available to the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force so that we are strong militarily for the purpose of deterring war or meeting any challenge by any adversary. But if there is any fat in the defense budget, it ought to be cut out by Congress or eliminated by the Secretary of Defense. In the meantime, all other departments must be scrutinized carefully so that they don't have any fat and marginal programs are eliminated. Of course, public enemy number one, and that's the one we have to uh, lick, is uh, uh, inflation. If we take care of inflation uh, and get our economy back on the road to a healthy future, uh, I think most of our other domestic programs or problems will be solved. We won't have high unemployment. We'll have ample job opportunities. Uh, we will, uh, I believe, give greater opportunities to minorities to have jobs. If we can lick inflation, and we're going to try, and I think we're going to have a good program, most of our other domestic programs will be solved. You've emphasized here um, your option of granting a pardon to the former president. I intend to. You intend to have that option. Uh, if an indictment is brought, would you grant a pardon before any trial took place? I said at the outset that uh, until the matter reaches me, I am not going to make any comment during the process of uh, whatever charges are made. Mr. President. I think a properly negotiated, effective uh, strategic arms uh, limitation agreement is in the best interest of ourselves, the Soviet Union, and a stable international situation. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you very much. Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace. This is our first of five episodes uh, that is the epilogue to our series on President Richard Nixon. Uh, and it will cover... Uh, the pardon, his uh, 
near-death illness from phlebitis and pneumonia, and then uh, his grand jury uh, testimony and situation. We will then cover, um, over the next few episodes, the fall of Saigon, um, you know, uh, the Frost-Nixon interviews, and a great little story about a little town of Hyden, Kentucky, who opened the door for President Nixon to begin really his comeback. Uh, then we're going to listen to the Oxford Union speech. It's an incredible moment in President Nixon's uh, career. While protesters are are outside uh, making as much noise as they can, he's inside answering questions and speaking to the Oxford Student Union, and it is uh, an extraordinary performance. You'll get to listen to the entire hour and 20 minutes. Then, as Richard Nixon rose from the ashes of Watergate, you're going to listen to the wisdom of Richard Nixon. And uh, and it's an amazing listen to these 10 or 15 years as he wrote books and did interviews and really shared his wisdom and vision of what was happening in the world. And in his final book, which he died before it came out, ironically, he talks about the situation in Russia that he envisions if we did not help um, with a Marshall Plan-like investment in Russian democracy uh, when Boris Yeltsin was there. And it is, it foreshadows Ukraine, a strong man rising in Russia, an an adventurous nationalistic Russia uh, that would be much more fearful uh, of an opponent across the ocean uh, than even the Soviet Union could have been. And it is as though a psychic had a crystal ball, if you've kept up with the news of the last uh, uh, while with about Ukraine and Russia and Vladimir Putin. And then finally, a grand finale look at the end of President Nixon's life and his impact in the, on the world stage. But right now, we're going to focus in on September the 8th, uh, 1974, one month after President Ford has taken the office. He is overwhelmed with issues related to the former president, 25% of everything that comes to his desk is dealing with uh, President Nixon's tapes, papers, his legal situation, um, just you name it. It's an issue that President Ford has to deal with, and he comes to the conclusion, and I think some of which probably is because Congress actually, amongst some moderate Democrats, uh, felt that President Nixon should be left alone, that, he, that, that, that his removal from office, his resignation was enough. Um, so you had that feeling amongst the elected officials, though they may not have been out front saying it. And then finally, uh, to his credit, considering the staff that he had, Leon Jaworski ha- had said to uh, President Ford, from what I know, that that Richard Nixon probably could not receive a fair trial. And so all of those things come together with President Ford deciding that the quickest way to get 25% of these problems of one person off his desk so he can concentrate on the other issues is to grant a full pardon for any crimes Richard Nixon committed. And this is a very important four words or may have committed. That is going to be very important as we move forward. I have learned already in this office that the Difficult decisions always come to this desk. I must admit that many of them do not look at all the same as the hypothetical questions 
that I have answered freely and perhaps too fast on previous occasions. My customary policy is to try and get all the facts and to consider the opinions of my countrymen and to take counsel with my most valued friends. But these seldom agree, and in the end, the decision is mine. To procrastinate, to agonize, and to wait for a more favorable turn of events that may never come, or more compelling external pressures that may as well be wrong as right, is itself a decision of sorts and a weak and potentially dangerous course for a president to follow. I have promised to uphold the Constitution, to do what is right as God gives me to see the right, and to do the very best that I can for America. I have asked your help and your prayers, not only when I became president, but many times since. The Constitution is the supreme law of our land, and it governs our actions as citizens. Only the laws of God, which govern our consciences, are superior to it. As we are a nation under God, so I am sworn to uphold our laws with the help of God. And I have sought such guidance and searched my own conscience with special diligence to determine the right thing for me to do with respect to my predecessor in this place, Richard Nixon, and his loyal wife and family. Theirs is an American tragedy in which we all, all have played a part. It could go on and on and on, or someone must write the end to it. I have concluded that only I can do that, and if I can, I must. There are no historic or legal precedents to which I can turn in this matter, none that precisely fit the circumstances of a private citizen who has resigned the presidency of the United States. But it is common knowledge that serious allegations and accusations hang like a sword over our former president's head, threatening his health, as he tries to reshape his life, a great part of which was spent in the service of this country and by the mandate of its people. After years of bitter controversy and divisive national debate, I have been advised and I am compelled to conclude that many months and perhaps more years will have to pass before Richard Nixon could obtain a fair trial by jury in any jurisdiction of the United States under governing decisions of the Supreme Court. I deeply believe in equal justice for all Americans, whatever their station or former station. 
The law, whether human or divine, is no respecter of persons, but the law is a respecter of reality. The facts, as I see them, are that a former president of the United States, instead of enjoying equal treatment with any other citizen accused of violating the law, would be cruelly and excessively penalized either in preserving the presumption of his innocence or in obtaining a speedy determination of his guilt in order to repay a legal debt to society. During this long period of delay and potential litigation, ugly passions would again be aroused and our people would again be polarized in their opinions. And the credibility of our free institutions of government would again be challenged at home and abroad. In the end, the courts might well hold that Richard Nixon had been denied due process, and the verdict of history would even more be inconclusive with respect to those charges arising out of the period of his presidency of which I am presently aware. But it is not the ultimate fate of Richard Nixon that most concerns me, though surely it deeply troubles every decent and every compassionate person. My concern is the immediate future of this great country. In this, I dare not depend upon my personal sympathy as a longtime friend of the former president, nor my professional judgment as a lawyer, and I do not. As president, my primary concern must always be the greatest good of all the people of the United States whose servant I am. As a man, my first consideration is to be true to my own convictions and my own conscience. My conscience tells me clearly and certainly that I cannot prolong the bad dreams that continue to reopen a chapter that is closed. My conscience tells me that only I, as president, have the constitutional power to firmly shut and seal this book. My conscience tells me it is my duty not merely to proclaim domestic tranquility, but to use every means that I have to ensure it. I do believe that the buck stops here, that I cannot rely upon public opinion polls to tell me what is right. I do believe that right makes might, and that if I am wrong, ten angels swearing I was right would make no difference. I do believe with all my heart and mind and spirit that I, not as president, but as a humble servant of God, will receive justice without mercy 
if I fail to show mercy. Finally, I feel that Richard Nixon and his loved ones have suffered enough and will continue to suffer no matter what I do, no matter what we as a great and good nation can do together to make his goal of peace come true. Now, therefore, I, Gerald R. Ford, President of the United States, pursuant to the pardon power conferred upon me by Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, have granted and by these presents do grant a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon for all offenses against the United States which he, Richard Nixon, has committed or may have committed or taken part in during the period from July 20, 1969 through August 9, 1974. Um, uh, 30 days after Nixon resigned, Ford, Gerald Ford was president. It was September 1974. Some of you may recall he went on television early on a Sunday morning announcing he was giving Nixon a full pardon for Watergate. Now, he went on television early on a Sunday morning hoping no one would notice. <laughs> well, it, it was noticed but not by me. I was asleep. And Carl called me up and said, have you heard? And I said, no, I was asleep. And uh, Carl, who then and still has the ability to uh, say what occurred in the fewest words and with the most drama, <laughs> said, the son of a bitch pardoned the son of a bitch. <laughs> Happy to report, I figured it out. I was over, well, I was out home, and uh, Ford called me without realizing the difference in time. He got me out of bed and told me what he'd done. I said, I think you've made a mistake. I said, number one, what has he done that you're going to pardon him for? He hasn't been indicted. He hasn't even been charged. So what are you pardoning him for? Well, I can't remember his exact words. He says, I think God will understand why I did it. I said, well, if he does, he'll be the only one that does, because I don't understand it, and I think it's wrong. You were at the office when you found out about the pardon, I said. Yeah, yeah. Any recollections of what people were saying? No, just disappointment, anger, outrage, um... And again, as I said, I, there was a lot of suspicion that Leon was in on it and anger at Leon. Um, anger at Forge for doing it. Um, I think there was some discussion of is it legal to, you know, to have done and ultimately resignation of it is what it is. It's over. We can't do anything. I'm trying to understand that uh, I, I'm a lawyer, so you, you had already uh, indicted some people. To add someone to an indictment at a later stage would have disrupted the trial. I mean, let me, you know, I have to think about the sequencing. His resignation was in August. 
Yeah, the indictment had been, somehow I want to say March. Did we indict in March? Does that sound right? Sounds right. Yeah, I think it was March. So, yes, um, it's not so much that. It was the publicity and the the president would need time, and we were close to starting trial. The trial was scheduled for, I think, September. So it was only a month before the trial. And, of course, that would have meant a minimum of a six-month delay. Minimum. And we, our team, you know, we were ready to go to trial. It's not like there was other things for us to investigate. We were the cover-up case and this was the cover-up case, so we wouldn't have needed to stay together. That's why I said we said, well, we'll disband, we'll go do other things, and we'll come back when the trial's ready. Um, so you would have, you and and actually, Jim Neal had left right after the indictment. Um, he left the office, went back because he was in private practice, and we continued the trial preparation and et cetera, and then he came back maybe a month or I don't remember the exact time, but maybe a month before the trial. So the resignation, did it delay the trial? The it start? didn't, no, no, because we didn't, he resigned, he yeah. got pardoned, we didn't indict him, so it was the same, you know, it was the same defendants. We still had an unindicted co-conspirator who was the president, and so that didn't change anything in terms of defense preparation or our preparation. Well, at the time of the pardon, uh, President Ford had already publicly stated that he was not going to interfere with uh, the process uh, and pardon Richard Nixon. He said, when it comes to my desk, then I will determine whether or not I will issue a pardon. And so in my mind, that provided the opportunity after the Watergate jury was sequestered. Remember, the pardon occurred in the summer, and the trial did not start until months after. Uh, I assumed that we would have the time uh, to then formulate a charge, uh, bring a charge of now ex-President Nixon, and then the president could decide whether he wanted to pardon Richard Nixon, and Richard Nixon could decide whether he would accept the pardon, but the charges would be spelled out. Instead, uh, President Ford reversed course and issued a pardon. Now, I have no problem with the fact that uh, Ford was within his constitutional power and authority to issue a pardon. I thought the timing was somewhat unfortunate because it left open the question uh, of whether Richard Nixon accepted responsibility uh, for his criminal activity. And that was not to be done except in a most half-hearted and still uh, incomplete way until years later during the David Frost interview of Richard Nixon where he sort of acknowledged that, yes, uh, he had been involved in, improperly uh, in connection with the post-break-in activities. But had the matter been framed in all of these revisionist books uh, and statements that uh, were published 
in the immediate aftermath of Watergate, and I must say continue and persist until this day, um, there would have been a greater clarity uh, brought to bear on exactly uh, what the various positions were, what the proof was against uh, Nixon, and <clears throat> a willingness to accept or not by going to trial responsibility for uh, criminal activity. As you can tell, there are some uh, unhappy people among the Nixon detractors with that pardon. But uh, I, I find Richard Benvenisti's uh, comments particularly offensive. And I want to go through them. Um, you know, he, he talks about revisionist books, and I, I'm guessing that is aimed at uh, anyone that disagreed with the prosecutorial uh, office's uh, conduct um, as related to President Nixon or anybody who defends President Nixon. But to me, it's interesting to, uh, to look at uh, some of the record that's out there. Irvin Gelman, who is a noted historian, uh, writes about uh, the conduct of Mr. Benvenisti and his office um, and and he and he wrote about uh, in in an article for in 2016 for the Daily Caller about Benton Becker. Now Benton Becker is the attorney that G President Ford sent to uh, to S San Clemente to deal with President Nixon. And let me quote this to you: President Gerald Ford dispatched his personal attorney Benton Becker to San Clemente, California, to meet with Richard Nixon and explain to the former president the significant provisions of the presidential pardon. Ford was granting the pardon, Becker emphatically highlighted, with the understanding that if Nixon accepted it, he was admitting guilt to criminal behavior. Now, in that negotiations, President Nixon uh, never admitted guilt and didn't agree to that. And that's why I made a point to say that the if you read the pardon, President Ford says any crimes that he did commit or may have committed. That tells you that President Nixon never agreed to an admission of guilt. Now, this article goes on um, to say, afterwards, quote, afterwards, Becker and Jack Miller, Nixon's counsel, had drinks where they speculated about a trial where Nixon was the defendant. If the former president, they both agreed, could could have received a fair trial, in parentheses, which they both concurred was impossible, a jury would have found Nixon not guilty. Now, this same article goes on to review Jeff Shepard's landmark book, which is the middle book, not the one that just came out, called The Real Scandal of Watergate. In it, he says, Shepard makes no secret that he is pro-Nixon and that this book is a defense of his president. The volume is not a traditional historical account. Rather, it is a legal brief designed to present the best possible argument on behalf of his client. If you are willing to entertain a spirited defense of Nixon and his close associates, then this is an essential read. The argument is clearly defined. The defendants faced a, quote, systematic denial of their constitutionally guaranteed rights to due process of law, unquote. The trial that Nixon's chief counselors confronted was a media circus, 
They were denied a jury composed of their peers and were prevented from confronting the cross and cross-examining their accusers in the true spirit of the adversarial system at trial. Their judge, John Sirica, played the roles of judge, prosecutor, and jury. Impartial lawyers looking for justice did not staff the Watergate Special Prosecutor's Force, but instead a group of partisan Democrats determined to convict the defendants at almost any price. The prosecutors did not present their case in front of an unbiased jury, but a pool selected from Washington, D.C. that was 80% Democrats who voted against Republicans. Finally, once the defendants were convicted in the federal district court, uh, district circuit court, their appeals were rejected in front of a liberal court of appeals that, too, was biased against the defendants. Some of the charges in this web of judicial impropriety are troubling. Judge Sirica had little respect for defendants in general and treated the Nixon defendants in this matter. He held ex parte sessions with the prosecutors on numerous occasions that, at the very least, demonstrated bias. He also was one of the most reversed federal district court judges. In the case against Nixon's associates, the Liberal Court of Appeals refused to recuse Sirica or grant a change of venue. the first head of the force was Archibald Cox, a staunch Democrat who vigorously supported John Kennedy against Nixon in the 1960 presidential election. Uh, Lyndon Johnson hired Cox's successor, Leon Jaworski, also a committed Democrat, to prevent a recount in Texas during the same election. Uh, it, it goes on. Uh, the WSPF relied on two principal witnesses who served Nixon and his associates. One was John Dean, a convicted felon who oftentimes changed his testimony to sub- to suit the prosecutor's demands. The other was Jeb Magruder, who altered his testimony so much that prosecutors worried about using him as a witness. The WSPF never disclosed this exculpatory evidence that the defendants could have used to impeach Dean and Magruder's testimony. No one denies that some government agents carried out criminal acts, but that does not excuse critics of the Nixon administration from committing their own excesses. It's a pretty damning case. And Mr. Benvenisti, he wants to rush uh, uh, a, a charge and get Nixon on trial uh, to force his hand while um, Nixon is. Um, uh, the view is that he couldn't get a fair trial, uh, uh, that Nixon was broke by uh, the time he left. He was seriously ill. He had had all of his materials seized and still had, and while they still had, sitting on the bench, Mr. Let the Fixes In, Sirica, uh, to manage their cases for him. You know, you know Ben Venisti wants to smile now 50 years later and kind of uh, make this case that, uh, that everybody who opposes that view is um, revisionist and, and that Nixon should have been uh, forced into a pardon only after charges were filed. And, uh, and and they were going to try to put him in jail, and he was totally and completely defenseless, which was the case in 1974. And there's something else pretty interesting. You hear Mrs. Winebanks make the case how angry they were that Leon Jaworski may have been involved with this pardon. But I think it's to Leon Jaworski's credit that he looked at the landscape as a whole and said, there's no way Richard Nixon could get a fair trial as Alexander Haig talks about in his oral history, which I have to read because it's not available on DVD. Opinion of Leon Jaworski. Paul Musgrave, one last one. 
what would be your impression of Leon Jaworski? Alexander Haig, Patriot, very true American and tough, unyielding, but a straight-shooting, honest professional. And I had a great admiration for him because he could have made life a lot more difficult for President Nixon than he did. And he told me in our last meeting that he would never follow up with criminal charges against Richard Nixon. He said, the man has suffered too much already. He was a Lyndon Johnson guy who I also knew very well. Unquote. Also see that not everyone agreed with the Watergate special prosecution force lawyers, um, but at least thought that what Gerald Ford did was right. And here's Bernard Nussbaum, who was the second man in command, in second person in command of the House Judiciary Committee staff. I was in favor of the pardon. I, you know, it was interesting. I don't, I shouldn't say I, I wasn't, I, that's too strong a way of putting it. I wasn't upset by the pardon. That's a better way of putting it. I don't know if I was in favor of the pardon. I don't know if I would have pardoned Richard Nixon if I was President of the United States. Uh, but I was not at all upset. I really understood the pardon thing. Uh, the country had been through such a difficult, you know, as, as Ford said, it would really stick. You know, our national nightmare is now over. Pursuing President Nixon and criminal charges after uh, after the impeachment, after his resignation, would have just kept this thing alive in a way I think would have been destructive for the country. And I think President Ford did the right thing in pardon President Nixon. It, it helped put the thing to rest. The fact that he accepted a pardon, and this is one of the was one of the president's problems, was some sort of acknowledgement of, of, of improper conduct on his part. I don't think he goes down favorably in history having had a pardon and accept. You don't have to accept a pardon. You can say I refuse a pardon. Uh, you know, do whatever you want to do, but I'm, don't pardon me. I'm not. I'm not accepting a pardon. So I thought it was a wise thing to do. Obviously, it, 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 it had deleterious consequences for President Ford, probably, and may have. You know, it was a close election ultimately against Jimmy Carter in 1976. But I, 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 I remember thinking when he was pardoned, I wasn't angry. People say, oh, you're angry, you spent all this time, you know. And I said, you know, I'm not angry. I'm not angry. We, we were, it worked. The House or the, the committee voted to impeach. There was overwhelming support for that resolution, both in the committee and in the, and there, as there would have been in the House. There was overwhelming support in the Senate, because the Senate was the one that really, the Senators went and asked him to resign. I said, we accomplished, and he's no longer president. What's the point in pursuing a criminal case against the president with respect to this, all of this? So I thought the pardon was, was the correct thing to do. A lot of people, friends of mine, disagree with us. and say he should have been punished if he, violated, <coughs> if he violated the law, if he committed crimes, you know. But I didn't believe that in this circumstance. I was, I was happy with the pardon. Happy? That's too strong a term. I, I, I wasn't... I, I understood the pardon, and, I, and, and as time went on, I more and more and more I thought it was the right right thing for President Ford to do. I don't know what the other people who you've discussed think about the pardon, but uh. President Ford, having um, issued that pardon, knew that he had created a firestorm. So he did something that I think is very brave, and I'll give him credit for, um, and something unparalleled in all of American history. He came down to uh, the Congress and was sworn in under oath and testified and took direct questions from the members of the House Judiciary Committee, one of which, and, and, and I, you know, it, it 
<laughs> Sometimes it just kills me to have to agree with somebody, but one of which Elizabeth Holtzman asked some very tough questions, and I do agree listening to some of, uh, of that proceeding that uh, she might have been the only one asking tough questions, but she did. And here's her remembrances and some of that committee hearing. Tell us about the experience of questioning President Ford about the pardon. Um, well, as surprising as the resignation was, uh, the Ford pardon really came as a, um, as a very sad surprise to me. And I was very upset by it because I thought that here we were on the House Judiciary Committee trying to establish that the rule of law was really the most important thing and that a president couldn't take the law into his own hands. Um, and uh, here we are in early September. That, that decision had been made in, in July. President Nixon had resigned in face of that, in essence acknowledging that that's how the country felt and Congress felt. And then you had President Ford uh, issuing a full and fair pardon under highly questionable circumstances. And um, there was a, the, the question on everybody's lips was, was there some sort of deal? In other words, the president was the pardon part of the deal to get President Nixon to resign his office, which would have raised serious constitutional questions and might have itself been an impeachable offense. Um, but I discovered to my chagrin that the House Judiciary Committee had no real interest in investigating this. Um, several, what happened was that as soon as the pardon was issued, several members of the House introduced what's known as art, uh, resolutions of inquiry. Those are special uh, privilege resolutions, and you can call for a vote on the House floor um, if the committee doesn't act on the resolution of inquiry. And these resolutions called for information about what happened leading up to the pardon. I think one of the authors was Bella Absogan there, but I can't remember the other. She wasn't the only one. Um, and so I was on the subcommittee to which this, these articles, these resolutions of inquiry were referred. And my reaction was, we met, Democrats met, and I said, well, we should conduct an investigation first. We should request the documents from the White House pertaining to the pardon. We should interview the people who participate in the pardon. You had a young lawyer, Benton Becker, who was the go-between here, but you also had other members of the um, president's staff who should have been interviewed. Uh, in fact, you had one of the president's, I think it was his press secretary, resigned um, in protest. Um, so that, I thought, was, you know, I, the normal process. I, I remember before I entered Congress, I'd just been practicing law at one of the major law firms in New York and major national law firm. So this is what you would do when you started a case. You'd get the documents, you'd interview the witnesses, you'd find out what was going on. And since it seemed so natural and so plausible and so logical to do that, the committee said, the subcommittee said to me, well, sure, Liz, that's a great idea. That's a terrific idea, but it never happened. They never asked for one document. They never asked for one witness. And I saw that time was going by, and I said, well, what are you doing about this? And 
yes, Liz, we're going to do it. They never did it. President Ford understanding uh, that this was, I, I guess, realizing himself from his own staff that there was no serious investigation, took the bull by the horns and said, I'm going to go and testify to you and tell you exactly what happened. And I again said to him, we should not be hearing from the, said to the committee staff and the, and the committee uh, chair and the members of the committee, we should not be hearing from the president. We can't ask him intelligent questions unless we've done our homework and gotten the background, what happened and so forth. They weren't going to do it. So the president came. I asked for more time for each one of us to question the president. We did not get any more time to question the president. So uh, nobody asked him any tough questions. Everybody was saying how nice it was, Mr. President. You've come down to the Congress to talk to us and tell us what you, you, know, what you think. And I didn't want to have to do this because it's not very nice to ask very tough questions of a president of the United States. But I didn't see how I could, I was, how I could avoid that. I was low person on the totem pole. I was the last person to ask questions. So I was hoping desperately that somebody would ask one of these questions before it got to me. I mean, there were four of the Democrats ahead of me on the committee. Nobody, and not to mention Republicans, nobody asked them any tough questions about the pardon. And so I, I had prepared beforehand thinking that this might happen. And so I said, because I also thought he could filibuster, so I didn't want to ask one question and then get an answer and have my five minutes taken up. So I just prepared a list of questions, and I said, I'm sure there are others that could need to be answered, but would you please answer these? And they included, you know, why he hadn't um, quite done this in such haste, um, why he went outside the normal process, why he didn't get a confession from Richard Nixon that he'd done something wrong, was there a deal, uh, what, were the, you know, what were the conversations that had taken place with Haig and, and so forth. Um, so I asked my questions. And the president said that emphatically there was no deal. But I think to this day, the answer is not clear. Um, Mr. Haig has never been questioned under oath about this. He was one of the uh, people involved, the go-between. He'd been a former staff member to Richard Nixon. The, um, a lot of information about secret conversations came out after the testimony. So it was a very unsatisfactory, um, very unsatisfactory conclusion. Mr. Ford, you stated that uh, the theory on which you pardoned uh, Richard Nixon was that he had suffered enough. And I... I'm interested in that theory because the logical consequence of that is that somebody who resigns in the face of virtually certain impeachment or somebody who is impeached should not be punished because the impeachment or the resignation in face of impeachment is punishment enough. And I wondered whether anybody had brought to your attention the fact that the Constitution specifically say, states that even though somebody is impeached, that person shall nonetheless be liable to punishment according to law. Uh, Mrs. Holtzman, I was fully cognizant of uh, the fact that the president, uh, on resignation, uh, was accountable uh, for any criminal charges. Uh, but I would like to say that the reason I gave the pardon was not as to Mr. Nixon himself. I repeat, and I repeat with emphasis, the purpose of the pardon was to try and get the United States, the Congress, the President, 
and the American people focusing on the serious problems we have both at home and abroad. And I was absolutely convinced then, as I am now, that if we had had this series, an indictment, a trial, a conviction, and anything else that transpired after that, that the attention of the President, the Congress, and the American people would have been diverted from the problems that we have to solve. And that was the principal reason for my granting of the pardon. Mr. Smith. Mr. Chairman, just before we uh, adjourn this hearing, I again would like to uh, commend the President and thank him for coming. I think, Mr. President, that you have probably opened a new era between the executive and the legislative departments, and I am very happy for it. Mr. Chairman, uh, I want to express to you and to the other members of the committee or subcommittee my appreciation uh, for the fine manner and I think the fair way in which this uh, uh, meeting was held this morning. I uh, felt that it was absolutely essential because I'm the only one who could explain uh, the background and the decision-making process. And I hope, as I said in my opening statement, Mr. Chairman, that I have at least uh, cleared the air so that most Americans will understand what was done and why it was done. And again, I trust that all of us can get back to the job of trying to solve our problems both at home and abroad. I thank you very, very much showed, number one, that the committee wasn't willing to make a proper investigation. Number two, that they were basically allowing a double standard of justice to take place, one for the President of the United States and another for everybody else, just months after having reasserted basic constitutional authority and the rule of law, which means nobody gets preferential treatment. And the, the Nixon pardon has had ram terrible ramifications. We've had other pardons of um, top-flight government officials who clearly engaged in wrongdoing and um, now and were permitted to go free. It's happened with uh, uh, President Bush one. Uh, questions have been raised about whether President Bush two will issue the pardon and. Um, uh, so I, I think it's just, it's, it's set a, a kind of very, it, it, it ended the Watergate proceedings with kind of a bad taste, at least in my mouth, and I think it established a kind of bad precedent in the future that high-level government officials can expect a pardon if they do something wrong and criminal. There's, you, um, there has been some talk that the pardon did provide for healing, so you don't share that. I think that's nonsense. I think the healing already took place once the committee... First of all, there was no healing. We were, we were grown-ups in this country. People got handled. People said, oh, we can't survive an impeachment. They said that. You can't have impeachment proceedings. The country couldn't stand it. Well, guess what? We could withstand it. No problem. And to the extent there was any division, in my mind, the impeachment process brought the country together because... Whether you had voted for Nixon, whether you were a Republican, an Independent, a Democrat, an unaffiliated, you felt that the rule of law had finally been carried out, that Congress had acted responsibly, that the other institutions of government had done their job, the Supreme Court, Sirica, so the courts had done their job, the prosecutors had done their job, the Congress had done its job, so even if the President hadn't 
our system of government worked. And I think that made and people renewed their commitment to the idea that the rule of law was more important than party and than any single person. That's what came out of it. We we rediscovered this about ourselves as a nation. I mean, we discovered it initially when the Constitution was written, but we didn't really have a chance to rediscover it. And I think we did rediscover it. So I think what happened was we were healed by this process. We reconnected to our commitment to the rule of law. And then you had President Ford coming and then shattering that that commitment to the rule of law. I, I don't think there was a healing. I, I don't agree with that at all. And I think some, and the interesting thing to me is that initially Judge Sirica, who was the hero to me in this process, um, said that the pardon was the correct thing to do. And then when he wrote his book, he said I was wrong. That it wasn't the right thing to do. That it did set a double standard. Did you talk to any Republicans about this? Did you call any conversation with your colleagues, Republican colleagues, about this? Did anyone? Did anyone? Oh, I'm sure we did, but I don't. Any of them share your view? I don't recall. I just don't recall. Um. What? Listen, there weren't many Democrats who shared my views, so I don't know whether Republicans would have. Um, you mean most of your Democratic colleagues <laughs> thought that the pardon was, was necessary? Uh, I don't know if they thought the pardon. They may not have liked the pardon, but they weren't willing to challenge President Ford. Um, what uh, what steps did, did the... But the pardon was very unpopular with the American people. And that goes to, the again, the question of healing. Americans were angry about the pardon. And... President Ford paid a huge political price. So I don't see how you can say there was healing when Americans remained angry enough to take it out on him in the next election. What effect do you think this experience had on the Democratic Party? I don't really, you know, it's a good question, but I don't know that you could, uh, I've never really looked at it from that point of view. Um, I've looked at it from the point of view of what it's done to the country, but I never looked at it from the point of view of what it did to the party. What did it do for the country? Um, well, Watergate as a whole showed that presidents could abuse their power, and that despite the hope that people would obey the law, that presidents of the United States would not. At least you had a gross example of illegality with regard to President Nixon. You also saw that the institutions of government, given the chance other institutions could do the right thing. So I think that was important. And I think the other thing that was really important, maybe the most important, was that the American people supported the rule of law and the constitutional process. And that was more important than President Nixon's political survival, even though most of them <laughs> just voted for him. Uh, so I think it showed a wisdom and... Um, and uh, real political smarts on the part of the American people. As a matter of fact, we had a conversation. As I recall, before I made the decision, I think Betty was one of the very, very few that knew I was going to make that decision uh, the two or three days ahead of time where I had fundamentally made it. And uh, I frankly said to her, this will have a very adverse political impact. You knew that. Absolutely. But the problems of just having the courts and the Department of Justice and the other people 
demanding so much time of a president when he should be working on other matters, I just decided, regardless of the political consequences, that I would do what I thought was right. Did you want him to do this? I thought he did the right thing. Did Richard Nixon ever say to you, uh, I don't know how two men like it, Jerry, I know what you did for me, or, or I know that this must have cost you a great deal? Not that I recollect, no. Uh, he, uh, uh, as I recall, uh, thanked me. But other than that, uh, we have not discussed it. I don't expect to uncover any new information here, but it's uh, obligatory that I take a swipe at it. When Haig spoke to you on August 1st, 74, he raised the possibility of a pardon, but without any agreement from you. So Nixon left office, according to all accounts from your side, left office uncertain of his fate. True? That's exactly right. He had no possible way of knowing that some three or four weeks later, I would make the decision to issue a pardon on his behalf. Haig raised it. Nixon himself never raised it to you? He, Nixon, never, never raised that question with me. What convinced you to do it? And in retrospect, did you ever regret it? First, I've never regretted it. And as a matter of fact, today, I feel more certain that it was exactly the right thing to do. But let me outline the situation that precipitated uh, my decision, and it was my decision, not that of my staff. In the first uh, three weeks of my presidency, we had a growing economic recession appearing, higher unemployment, more inflation, higher interest rates. At the same time, we had the tragedy of Vietnam getting worse and worse and worse. At the same time, our allies were apprehensive. And we couldn't be oblivious to the possibility that our enemies might take advantage of this situation. Those problems demanded that I spend 100% of my time on the business of our country. The truth was, the first month... I spent 25% of my time listening to the lawyers from the Department of Justice and lawyers from the White House staff telling me what I should do about the Nixon tapes, the Nixon papers, etc. Here I was spending 25% of my daily time in the White House on one person's problems. When I should, with all the problems involving our country, at home and abroad, I should have been spending 100% of my time on those problems. I finally decided the only way to clear the deck so I could concentrate on what was good for America was to get rid of Mr. Nixon's various problems, and a pardon was the only way to do it. Uh, I did it. I feel stronger today that it was the right decision and to be honest with you, I'm pleased that recent polls indicate that the public is more supportive today, and that gives me uh, reassurance. But of course, you're not running for president today, and you knew that there was at least a chance that you would run for president, as you did in 1976. And at the time, there were two major misgivings. One, was it possible that Jerry Ford, a symbol of integrity, had worked out a deal, either upon becoming vice president 
or shortly before Nixon left office? And two, did this deprive the nation of full disclosure? Number one, there was absolutely categorically no deal. And as you, I'm sure, know, I volunteered to go up and testify before a House committee on judiciary so that there would be no question that there was never a deal. Secondly, uh, I think the country was far better off when they were able to have the matter off the front pages of the newspapers and the country could concentrate on their various problems at home and abroad. Uh, some people argued, well, why don't you wait till Mr. Nixon is indicted, if he was going to be, if he was convicted, if he ever was, if there was an appeal. But if you had gone through that process, Bob, it would have taken as much as a year or more. And those headlines uh, about a former president uh, and all the things that would be written about it, I think would have continued to tear apart our country when the most important thing we needed was a healing. Now, therefore, I, Gerald R. Ford, President of the United States, pursuant to the pardon power conferred upon me by Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, have granted and by these presents do grant a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. President Nixon, uh, who was in very bad health. People recall he had the phlebitis, and uh, he nearly died, according to all accounts. You saw him shortly after the pardon, and it was kind of an emotional exchange. Well, I went to California uh, on a campaign trip to help some Republican candidates. But while I was there, I had heard that former President Nixon was in very, very bad condition in the hospital. So I felt, uh, on the basis of our long friendship, that I should stop by and see how he was doing. I got to the hospital, and Pat and one or more of his daughters were there because he was a very sick man. The sad thing, in addition to his condition, was when the hospital people were going to let me into his room, the door was locked and nobody had a key. So they finally got a mechanic or somebody to open the door. And when I walked in, uh, President Nixon was, uh, you know, at all kinds of tubes and everything else. Uh, he was a very, very sick man. Uh, he recognized me. We chatted or I said a few words, but it was obvious that I shouldn't stay in, uh, under those conditions. But I'm glad I did. I'm glad I stopped and expressed my personal concern. Uh, it uh, would have been unforgivable not to do so based on our long friendship. Were you disappointed that he wasn't more contrite? After all, technically, accepting a pardon means you've made an admission of guilt. Sometime afterwards, he does the, uh, the well-known interview with David Frost and conceded some things, evaded others, certainly wasn't as straightforward about it as you would have hoped. There is a United States Supreme Court decision 
involving a presidential pardon. I don't recall a precise sentence or two that indicates it, but the Supreme Court decision says the acceptance of a pardon, in effect, is an admission of the guilt. So regardless of what words or language might have been used or were used uh, based on that Supreme Court decision, uh, I think the fact is uh, there had to be uh, an admission by uh, former President Nixon. Uh, I don't know how many people really do realize just how sick President Nixon was during this period of time right after the pardon. And um, and it was, I thought, very gracious of President Ford to go. Um, the next thing that kind of happened uh, rolling into the, to the next year in 75 was, of course, the, the trials of the Watergate uh, defendants. And the prosecutors, uh, Leon Jaworski had resigned. Henry Ruth um, stepped in as the next prosecutor. And they demanded an opportunity to interview President Nixon for grand jury, uh, you know, so they'd have a, uh, a trans, uh, you know, his testimony before grand jury. So anyway, uh, it was sealed for I don't know how many years uh, until about 2013 when Stanley Cutler, who was a historian, managed to get it um, released. And uh, we have Henry Ruth discussing that, but I thought, I, I looked up an article in the New York Times uh, that was released about the time, in November uh, 10th of 2011, it was titled, The Newly Released Transcripts Show a Bitter and Cynical Nixon in 75, and it goes through some highlights, um, so I thought I'd maybe let you hear some of it. They kind of concentrate in the article more about Nixon's personality, but uh, uh, it says that the transcripts offered a remarkable portrait of Nixon after he left office. Bitter at his disgrace and cynical about politics, he presented himself as a victim of governmental abuses by his enemies during his long career in politics and said that prosecutors with an eye to ingratiating themselves uh, with the Washington media and the Georgetown set were out to destroy him. Quote, in politics, some pretty rough tactics are used, he said, and we deplore them all. Uh, he also uh, noted that uh, the Kennedy and Johnson White House um, were guilty of hardball tactics and uh, used them against him, asserting that it had directed the IRS and other government agencies to discredit him as he ran for governor of California. Quote, they were pretty smart, I guess, he said. Rather than using a group of amateur Watergate bunglers, or burglars, well, they were bunglers, they used the FBI and used the IRS and used it directly by their own orders against, in one instance, a man who had been vice president of the United States running for governor. Uh, Nixon repeatedly reminded the questioners that he had been preoccupied with grave matters of state, including the war in Vietnam. He seemed aware of just how much he was claiming a failure of memory, uh, which apparently he did uh, several questions. And he quotedly said, I want the grand jurors to understand that when I say I don't recognize something, it isn't because I'm trying to or want to duck a question, he said. Uh, later on in the article, uh, the hours Nixon... Uh, Hours of Nixon talking and sparring are a window on the personality of the 37th president. Uh, Nixon appeared to, uh, in, in the article, Nixon appeared to flatly deny accusations that the White House had used the IRS to try to discredit sitting chairman of the Democratic National Committee, Lawrence O'Brien, and, and that he had an enemies list. 
And uh, if you know the story on the enemies list, it was compiled by another staffer whose name I won't mention, but um, he's very well known. He used to be a counsel to the president. Um, and it, um, and so I'm not sure that Nixon uh, kept that list himself. Um, prosecutors uh, tape exerts ex- experts. He described uh, Nixon in, in the, in the uh, testimony as these clowns. And he refers to G. Gordon Liddy, who headed the White House plumbers, as a very bright young man in one way and very stupid in others. At another point, Nixon asserted that, quote, as a result of my orders, and I gave them directly, that never to my knowledge was anybody in my responsibility for heckling George McGovern, Nixon's Democratic opponent in 1972. Quote, now actually my decision was not all that altruistic, to be honest. Nixon said, my decision was based on the fact that I didn't think it would be do any good why martyr the poor fellow? He was having enough trouble. <laughs> and that's true. Later on, uh, he told Alexander Haig, uh, when they were discussing the 18 and a half minute gap, to look into the 18 minute and a half gap on the White House tapes. I said to him, let's find out how this damn thing happened. Uh, Nixon said, I am sorry. I wasn't supposed to use profanity. You've got enough of that on the tapes. <laughs> so he had a little bit of a sense of humor. Uh, and then Nixon returns again and again to the notion that he was singled out for conduct that was common in politics and public life. He said he was the target of eavesdropping, not just by Democrats, but by the FBI. Quote, the FBI was at one point directed to bug my plane, he said. And J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director, once told me that they did. Uh, Nixon told prosecutors that only if there is an absolute guarantee that there will not be disclosure of what I say, I will reveal for the first time information with regard to why wiretaps were proposed, information which, if it's made public, will be terribly damaging to the United States. This disclosure appears to have been cut from the transcript. So um, I hope that points to people that there was a significant reason why he had to wiretap people to stop leaks that were going on and try to figure out what was happening with press and some of the staff. And, you know, there's only like 19 wiretaps this idea that he was out wiretapping the world is, is not true. Um, and then at the end of the article, it says, Nixon often flashed his disdain for prosecutors, whether he was belittling, belittling the way they asked their questions or accusing them of being partisan. Quote, you can play that trick all day, Nixon admonished the prosecutor. We can take all day on that. Ask the question properly. Um, and then later he told him, I am not unaware that the vast majority of the people working in the special prosecutor's office did not support me for president. <laughs> I think you can get from the tone of this article that, um, and then if you listen to the oral histories and their tone, that unlike uh, most of the rest of us, President Nixon didn't have to put up with it, and he didn't. And I'm proud of him for that. You, at some point, that you and the staff had to consider what role former President Nixon might play uh, in the collection of evidence for the cover-up trial. Um, please tell us what you recall of uh, how you went about uh, getting him to testify um, for the grand jury, please. Well, his lawyer at that time was Jack Miller, <clears throat> who had been my boss at Justice. And we were after Jack Miller constantly as to when Mr. Nixon might testify for the grand jury. And indeed, we wanted his testimony at trial or be available if subpoenaed. 
And I don't know if you ever knew Jack Miller. He's deceased, but he's a shrewd negotiator. And uh, that's one of the reasons we didn't want Archie Cox to meet with Kleindeast because he was represented by Miller at the time. And so, and what, and and you were concerned that Miller would do what to Archie Cox? Whatever he wanted, because he did that to everybody else. <laughs> did he do that to you? Well, the only time he really did it to me was I remember before Nixon went to the grand jury. I asked Jack, "Well, should I bring a Bible for Nixon to swear on? Isn't it, does he care about that?" Jack said, oh, no, you won't need a Bible. And it was that point that I realized I did need a Bible. <laughs> uh, we'll get to the Bible story, um, which is wonderful in a moment, um, your story of the Bible. Um, but I wanted to ask you about uh, when you replaced Leon Jaworski as the special prosecutor, what at that point is your mission? What's left to do? Well, we had a number of investigations still going on. And so we had to finish those. And, uh, of course, the Watergate trial had not occurred as yet. And we had to decide, I had to decide whether I wanted to challenge the pardon legally. Even though, Leon, we couldn't. And we needed the testimony. Tell tell us, was it a, a 5149 proposition, the uh, decision to contest or not the pardon? How close a decision was it? How close a call was it for you? Well, I think after all the research and everything, it was not a difficult issue to decide. I mean, there's no... legal limits on the pardon power. But you weren't sure when you took over as... Well, nobody had ever researched it. <laughs> but you might have, had you found that possible. Yeah. You remember with Clinton, uh, he pardoned a guy whose trial was pending in the Southern District of New York. And the present attorney general had said, he could do that. Now, I don't know on what basis they had research, but pardoning a person before his felony trial occurs and he has fled to Europe strikes me as not a good, <laughs> good thing to do. I believe this is the Mark Rich case, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but that was after Watergate. Yes. Uh, getting the president's testimony, uh, former President Nixon's testimony, what uh, you had to agree to some conditions. In the end, you agreed to some conditions. What were they? Well, we decided that the, since the Watergate trial occurred, and we had nothing 
involving the trial that was still under investigation, that legally we could not use the grand jury to investigate the Watergate cover-up. And so we had told uh, Jack Miller that we wouldn't question Nixon about that in the grand jury, but we would ask about the 18-and-a-half-minute cap in the tapes. You ask about uh, four different issues since the um, grand jury testimony was, was open just two days ago. 18-and-a-half-minute gap, the sale of ambassadorships, uh, the, the Rebozo $100,000, the money from, from Hughes that Rebozo had some control over, and also the misuse of the IRS. Um, how did you choose those four? Why were those the four things that you were at this point asking the question, uh, asking the president, former president about? Because literally they were in pending investigations. So they were still open in the sense we wanted to know as prosecutors, what were the facts in those issues? Um, and there weren't, uh, you hadn't, you had determined that there was no one else that you wanted to, or potentially wanted to indict for the cover-up. You felt you had, you had, by then had indicted everyone who might have been involved in the cover-up. Well, in Watergate, I never assumed that we knew everything. And given the nature of history, I assumed that other found out after we disappeared. But in fact, we had no more facts to pursue at the time. We never did get access to the Nixon documents ourselves. We only got replies to things we had asked for and other people had searched for. Um, tell us about the, the, the day, the first day the president testifies and you decide that there should be a Bible. Well, I brought my Bible up from the hotel room, so it was a Gideon Bible. And we used that. Judge from San Diego had agreed to come up and swear in the president. And he did that. And as soon as he did that, I forget who asked, but I remember Nixon said, I I think the chief judge may have asked for Nixon's autograph or something. And so Mr. Nixon opened the Bible and autographed it to the chief judge and handed the Bible to him. And I, I talked to one, the, the young lawyer representing the president at the time, Stan Mortensen. I talked to him the other day, and he said he and Jack were jokers that they could challenge any indictment of Nixon 
on the grounds that he'd been sworn in on a stolen Bible. <laughs> and uh, the, the judge actually took the Bible. Took the Bible. The judge asked me, well, I'd like to stay, he said. And I said, well, Your Honor, this isn't in the transcript for some reason. I said, Your Honor, you know, you shouldn't stay for grand jury proceedings as, as a third person. Excuse the reference to third person. And reluctantly, the judge agreed to leave. Uh, you replaced the Bible, didn't you? I called the Gideon people when I got back to the office and asked him, much is your Bible worth? <laughs> and I sent them a check, yeah. Um, tell us, uh, first of all, where did, where was this held? Where, where, where was the testimony, the two-day testimony held? Well, the te- testimony was at the... Um, right next to Nixon's home in San Diego, or north of San Diego. I think it was a Coast Guard facility. And there was a conference room there that we took testimony. And then the day following the testimony, Richie Davis and I spent a full day asking more questions of Mr. Nixon. Um, how did you select the tape transcripts to, to bring with you or to, uh, to give the president in preparation for this? Well, Jack Miller knew what tapes, what we were interested in. And, uh, of course he had access to the tapes. Uh, but you, but you're the ones you supplied transcripts. You supplied your own transcripts for the, the with the Watergate Special Prosecution Force transcripts. Well, the transcripts, you know, had been used at the trial. Any transcripts that have been used, we did provide. And and the president was provide the provided these beforehand to prepare. Yeah, sure. And how long did the negotiations take before the before the um, testimony occurred. We're talking about a few months, a few weeks. No, we had months. It's a long time. I started talking to Jack about it, and you recall the president had an illness. Was it phlebitis or yes. something? And then pneumonia. Yeah, and uh, we had gotten at the time of the. We first started pursuing the testimony. We had asked Mr. Nixon's uh, doctors to tell us about his physical condition and whether it was not a good thing for his health for him to go through this testimony. And when Jack and I worked out the idea to California because of his health, rather than Nixon coming to the Washington grand jury, 
we gotten permission from Chief Judge Hart to do that and take a couple grand jurors with us. And even then, for a while, Jack was saying, no, health prevents it. And the doctors finally gave us affidavits saying health does not prevent it. But he should not travel to Washington from California. But doing it out there would be okay with him medically. Um, how did he look? Well, you know, at that time, one had seen Nixon on television so often that I felt I already knew him. So he didn't look ill. He looked tired. And during the testimony, he occasionally was brought medicine. But he looked okay. How would you characterize this many years later, his testimony? Well, I thought he was always incapable of being forthcoming in his own mind and in his own view. At one point in the grand jury testimony, he referred to our vendetta. And, and I cautioned there was no vendetta. And with that as his attitude, and his sense of history, that I never thought he would be truly forthcoming. Did, after the uh, testimony, was there was there ever a question of, of perhaps indicting him? No, nobody thought there was, that we had any evidence of that, that we could prove. Um, were, did any indictments come as a result of these last four investigations? Well, we had some indictments where I can't remember the timing of them, but none of them were based on Mr. Nixon's testimony. Um, did you, um, did you manage the John Connolly trial or that case? Well, I was in charge of the prosecution. Frank Turkheimer, who was one of the Southern District of New York lawyers we had brought down, was the principal trial lawyer. And Edward Bennett Williams, of course, represented Connolly. Um, <clears throat> what do you remember of that case? Well, I remember that case vividly because actually there's some things I can't talk about that had come up during that investigation. We thought that there was a key witness who did not testify, who oddly enough was represented by Hundley. 
and Angie Lano had pursued the guy. So we spent a long time before reading that case. And I was very reluctant to indict at the time. And I asked anybody in the office, I sent out a memo saying, here's the prosecution memo, which we always did before bringing a case. The chief prosecutor would write a memo why this should be indicted. <clears throat> I sent that memo around the office and asked people whether they agreed that Connolly should be indicted. I wasn't surprised when everybody said yes. So I brought in an outside lawyer who had been a prosecutor recently, and a very good one, and told him to talk to Turkheimer and read the memo and tell me what he thought. So I think he was really somewhat doubtful, but he wanted to back the rest of the office. He said, the case looks good to me. And after Turkheimer had presented government evidence, it was clear to me the case hadn't gone well because all the press was talking to me about the weakness of the case. They were criticizing Turkheimer to me. And Judge Hart, who, as I said before, was a hardened Republican and Sirica critic, was in charge of that case. And he, we had indicted Connolly for taking a gratuity, although the press treated it as a bribery case. It wasn't. And uh, Judge Hart, I think, was skeptical. He had just the perjury counts in the indictment saying you shouldn't join that, which I thought was not a correct decision. And Hart somehow knew that. But I remember at the end of the case, Judge Hart, called me and said, he said, Henry, I understand why you brought this case now. Then the acquittal came in. That was a disappointment to me. Jaworski had decided that he couldn't participate in that case. But of course, he was always asking Frank about it. <laughs> it was a disappointment, but you thought it was a weak case. Well, I didn't think it was a weak case. But the principal witness for the prosecution 
had pleaded guilty and uh, I guess we had agreed, I forget whether we, what we agreed to, we had some arrangement with him and uh, I really didn't like that witness because I interviewed him in the office. I, I think I, you are the one who said you weren't sure that this was indictable. That's all. Because that's, remember you. Well, that's what I was considering whether to indict. That's why. So you, did something come in after the decision was made to go ahead that made the case stronger? Because you, you, you might not have indicted. It was your preference. Well, the, there was this witness hanging out there that would have really made our case. And there were some aspects of the principal witness's testimony that I didn't think was complete. I didn't think he was lying, but I didn't think it was complete. So it was an evidentiary problem. I see. Pay close attention to this. John Connolly defeated the Watergate Special Prosecutor Force, one of the few people who did. And he sits here today trying to tell you that he had a witness that could have won the case for him, trying to figure out a way to put a black mark on John Connolly forever. That is the character of the Watergate Special Prosecutor's Force, if ever it showed itself. Go back to the uh, pres former President Nixon's uh, grand jury testimony after you were done, and it was uh, 11 hours of testimony. Were you disappointed? No, I didn't expect anything else. Well, sure, I was disappointed. But uh, well, Perhaps I should rephrase. Uh, you, uh, you were not surprised. That's right. You talked to the president about other things afterwards. For the whole day afterwards. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about... What, what you were interested in, what he might have told you? Oh, well, I, Richie Davis, another staff member, was with me at the time. <coughs> and I remember we asked Mr. Nixon about things that had not resulted in an indictment, trying to explore any knowledge he had. Was that any more enlightening than what you, uh, what he had said uh, to the grand jury? Well, enlightening, I suppose it was, but not helping a case. Can you remember any of the of the topics that you asked him about in, in that conversation? Well, you'd have to ask Richie. I'm sure Richie had long notes about that. Um, I did during that day. Um, Mr. Nixon asked me whether I wanted a cold drink. And they brought me a bottle of Pepsi, which had a dead fly in the bottom. And I said to Mr. Nixon, there's a dead fly here. 
Does this express your attitude towards our office? He said, no, no, I'll have to scold whoever was the president of Pepsi at the time, who was a close friend, I guess, of Nixon's. But that's my most memory of that day. <laughs> of, the, of the president. Yeah. Um, uh, again, now that the testimony is, 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 is open for the most part, are there any moments you can recall when the president was testifying to, to the grand jury where you were just struck by what he was saying? Uh, Distraught? No, struck by. Struck? Yes. No. Finally, with the, at least the criminal legal problems behind him, Richard Nixon was free to engineer one of the most amazing comebacks yet again in all of American history. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.